Turn to your Bible, in your Bible rather, to Revelation chapter 4. Once again, welcome to those of you joining us online this morning. Uh, Probably quite a few. I think a lot of folks are away because of the holiday weekend, which is normal. It's kind of an unusual holiday being on Tuesday. Uh, Most of the corporations, like mine, have given Monday off, so then you take another vacation day on Friday or whatever, and you have a nice almost a week. So, All right, Revelation chapter 4. So we're going to read this again because we need to understand this picture. Revelation chapters 4 and 5, of course, we're just doing chapter 4 this morning, but the two taken together is one scene that is happening in the heavenly realm. And so as we read this again, I pray that we understand what's happening in heaven. When worship is taking place, this is worship before the throne of God. This ought to shape our thinking. It ought to shape our theology about worship. It ought to shape our understanding of if that's what they're doing in heaven. Remember, we even pray in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the same thing could be said that we want our worship that's going on in heaven to be the same on earth. We want to bring that to the earth. And so it's important for us to understand this. So let's read it together again, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and asking the Lord just to impress this upon our hearts as we read it. And after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne 
and worships him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Lord, add your blessing, we pray, to the reading of your word, and may this this scene, this heavenly scene, be impressed upon us, Lord, to such a degree that when we have our own personal private times of prayer and worship, that we understand that, that you are holy and that it is all about you. And just as it says here, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power for you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. Lord, help us to keep that in perspective. That helps us understand your sovereignty, your dominion, your rule over everyone and everything. Lord, speak to us for your servants are listening. Open our eyes that we may see and behold incredible things from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We had just finished the seven churches and then last week we took a moment to look at the rapture of the church and what it means for the church to be taken up from the earth into heaven. And you may remember back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, you may want to turn there for a moment. And we have this divine outline given to us in the scripture in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 reads as follows. The things which you have seen, write, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And we understand that to mean, as Jesus was speaking to the Apostle John, write the things which you have seen, which were the things that Jesus revealed to him in chapter 1. Remember, Jesus revealed himself to John in chapter 1. And then the things which are, we understand that to be chapters 2 and 3, the church age, which we now know as a period of 2,000 years and, and ticking. And then the things which will take place after this, we understand that to mean after the church age or after the rapture of the church. And beginning in chapters 4 and 5, we have this heavenly interlude, this heavenly scene And we understand and believe that the saints have been raptured and that they're in heaven. And as we will get into this, we'll talk about it. But what does it mean that uh, who are these 24 elders and what do they represent? And at least in part, they represent the church being in heaven. And so we, we see this scene and we understand that this is not just a scene that's like an interlude. But this is a scene that's taking place in perpetuity, in eternity in heaven. It's taking place even now. It takes place as John is being given an opportunity and an open door to to be caught up into heaven and to be allowed to see into what happens. And John is almost, as you get a sense of reading this over and over and over, maybe transported in by this angel and allowed to sort of stand in the gallery, maybe the mezzanine, and look down and to witness this event happening. And a key part of what we need to do today in reading chapters 4 and 5 is to attempt to put ourselves into the sandals of John the Apostle. 
Now, Jesus and John spent time together, of course, for three years on the earth and got to know one another. And, And John now is the last living apostle. And he's being allowed to see things that are so amazing, that are that are rapturous, meaning just too, too, too much. And even the psalmist wrote all the way back, way, 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 a couple thousand years before this, saying, Lord, as I fellowship with you, this is even in the Old Testament, remember, you speak to me and there are things too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. And now we have John being swept up into the presence of God, into the throne room of heaven. And he sees this incredible scene of worship. You know, and and Jesus said, we've been going through this in the Gospel of John, uh, I think this is in chapter 15, where he said to the disciples as he's instructing them and they're dialoguing about things just before he goes to the cross, he has this puzzling but amazing verse where he speaks to them and he says, and in that day you will ask me nothing. And I think in this moment as John is caught up into heaven and he sees this heavenly scene, everything makes sense. Everything makes sense before the throne of God. Everything makes sense in the presence of worship. And I think this picture that God allows John to see that's recorded for us to see is meant to change and to influence and to persuade our understanding of who God is. It's to persuade our understanding of of worship both corporately and privately because God is God and whether we worship Him in a group of people or whether we worship Him individually in our own personal times, we need to understand this is a picture of God in heaven and we only have a few times in Scripture where we're given this glimpse into heaven. A couple of times the prophets were given a glimpse into heaven. We'll look at a couple of those. Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10, he was sort of given a vision into heaven. We see in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was ushered into the throne room of heaven. And here, John, but also you may remember that Paul, in his experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, and if you want to turn there, you can, I'll read it to you. Paul wrote this of his own experience. He says, I know a man in Christ, and he's speaking in the third person, but as you read through this and and study it and understand it, Paul is sort of trying not to boast. And uh, he's talking about almost like I knew this person. You know how sometimes we say today, you know, hey, I'm asking for a friend. In reality, we're asking for ourselves, right? We do this all the time, right? Paul's writing here and he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, and whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. I believe the picture that John is ushered into is what we could call the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. This was Paul's experience. And he was given some kind of a momentary glimpse into heaven. Many believe that Paul saw this when he was stoned all the way back in the book of Acts. You may remember uh, outside of the, the cities of Derby and Lystra, he was stoned and drug outside the city and left for dead. 
And remember, some of the brethren came around him and prayed, and God raised him up. Now, whether he was really dead, we don't know, but they presumed him to be dead because they had stoned him. And going through that experience and seeing his his lifeless body laying on the ground, that's what they thought. And Paul, most likely, if that was indeed the case, had sort of a momentary out-of-body experience where he was brought up into the heavens. And he saw this, and he says, what I saw, I'm not even allowed to talk about it. And here John is, being ushered into heaven. And notice it says, I looked, verse 1, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. And this was, again, likely God speaking, calling him up. And John is attempting with language to put into words things that even what Paul said are inexpressible and unutterable. So he's trying to describe what he's hearing and what he's seeing with words. So I heard this voice like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. If you've ever studied the book of Revelation or you've ever listened to anybody talk about this, that phrase there, um, after this, or the things which must take place after this, is a a Greek phrase called metatauta. And it's used a few times as transitions and it just means uh, transition. What has to take place after this? So I've shown you this, now I'm going to show you what has to take place next after this. And if you've ever read the book or seen the movie of you know, Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens. You remember when the different uh, angels of, you know, Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future came. It was a similar kind of a thing, right? As those angels came and showed him. And he said, so after this, there's the next one. And after this, there's the next one. And this is the same thing that's happening here in a sense. Metatalta, after these things, I'm going to show you, John, what must take place. After what? After the church age. After the church has been taken up and raptured. And the tribulation is about to begin. So before uh, the tribulation begins, you know, John will see that in the, the coming chapters, beginning in chapter 6. He's now being allowed to see into the throne room of heaven. So he sees this door standing open in heaven. He's allowed to walk through it and to go into the very presence of God. So in verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Now John had said this before, hadn't he? That he said I was, in the very beginning, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And it would seem from our understanding and reading of this that John was just under the strong influence of the Holy Spirit and perhaps he was just allowed in a, maybe in a trance-like state, we're not exactly sure, to, to be seeing in the Spirit the things that God wanted to show him. Remember, as John is writing this, he's on the island of Patmos. Just a barren rock, a prison island, a, people, a place where people were sent to, to be imprisoned, not so much in a jail cell, but on a rock, too far away from shore, no way to to get off of this rock. And so he's there in this God-forsaken place as we might speak of it. And yet God himself is speaking to him and revealing himself to him. And he says, I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven. 
Now, something I want to point out to you, this is one of those times when we talk about the number of times a word is used, and a lot of times our eyes kind of glaze over and roll back in our heads when we hear these things, but pay attention for just a moment. The key word in this chapter is the word throne. In the New Testament, the word throne is used 62 times, but 56 of those times it speaks directly of the throne of God, the other times such as the throne of a ruler or of a king or whatever. And of those 56 times that the throne of God is spoken of in the New Testament, 43 of those times are here in the book of Revelation. 43. That's 77% of the time that the throne of God is spoken of. It's in the book of Revelation. That's significant to us, but it's even more significant that here in chapters 4 and 5... 19 times the throne of God is mentioned. So that's 44%. Nearly half of the times the throne of God is spoken of occur here in these two chapters, chapters 4 and 5. This is a dramatic picture for us. And if you've ever said, I wonder what it's like in heaven, take a good look right here. In these two chapters, while there are other places, of course, in the New Testament and in the Bible that the throne of God is spoken of, this is a great place to go and to get a Reader's Digest version, a Cliff Notes version, however you want to think of it. This is a snapshot, a synopsis, a picture of what it's like to be in the very presence of God. And you know what? We will be here one day. This is not just a story. This is not just a fanciful tale. This is a picture for us. This is reality. What we're reading here is reality before the throne of God. And so we need to read it. We need to understand it. Now it was interesting as I was sitting and reading this yesterday, just thinking through it, and you know, you get overwhelmed thinking about these things. I began to think about. In Romans chapter 1, where it says that God gave them over. And where people had departed from God, and of course that's speaking of giving people over to bizarre and strange sexual practices. And that's of course where he talks in Romans chapters one, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 about you know, homosexuality, gay and lesbianism, and he talks about all of that there. But he says that they had forsaken God in their thoughts. They, they sort of put God out of their minds and it calls to mind the number of times in the book of the Psalms where it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Let me read these two quotes to you. This is in contrast to what we're seeing here and experiencing. The bottom line of atheism or materialism is that there is no throne. There is no seat of authority or power that the entire universe must answer to. The bottom line of humanism is that there is a throne, but man sits upon it. We are our own God. We answer to no one but ourselves. He goes on to say, we can't rightly think about much of anything until we settle in our mind that there is an occupied throne in heaven and the God of the Bible rules from that throne. And so the picture of the throne room of God, of God himself being on that throne, 
which is what we're seeing in chapter 4. In chapter 5, the Lamb of God is introduced. That's not what we're seeing in chapter 4. Remember Daniel, because we went through Daniel before getting to Revelation. Daniel had a vision where he called uh, someone the Ancient of Days, and I saw the Ancient of Days in heaven. We believe, as we said back then, that the Ancient of Days, as Daniel saw him, was a reference to God the Father in heaven. And so here, in verse 3, he says, And he who sat there on that throne was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So we see some different prepositions referring to what's happening on that throne, and we will go through them, beginning with, in verse 2, it says, On the throne was what? Or who? It was God the Father, the Lord God Almighty. And we're told here in verse 3 that he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. The jasper stone was a clear stone. Many compare it to a diamond. And the sardius stone was a blood red stone, sort of like a ruby. So he's, notice, he's not describing God like we would be describing a person. Normally when we're told to describe a person, of course it might be after a crime, well did you see the person and can you describe them to us? How tall were they? What color was their hair? What were their facial features like? Did they have any distinguishing marks? But here, what John is seeing, what he's describing, is something that's more around the character of God. It's around the glory of God because as he looks at God, he doesn't see so much a man like a glorified man, he sees the presence of God. And so he's trying to describe what the presence of God is like. And it says, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Imagine what he's trying to tell us here as he's seeing. He's like, "I'm, I'm seeing this presence on the throne and I'm seeing something that's clear, crystal clear. But it also has a red hue to it. Not giving us a very good picture, is it? At trying to, if you were an artist, trying to recapture that and like a sketch artist, how would you draw that? And so the precious stones mentioned here also seem to have a meaning because they are mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. The jasper stone is described in chapter 21 as being clear like crystal. This would seem to indicate that it may be what we would call today a diamond. Uh, The sardius stone is a red like a ruby. The significance, however, goes far beyond the color. Uh, though, Though the clear jasper might refer to the purity of God and his redemptive purposes, according to the Old Testament, these stones also had a relationship to the tribes of Israel. Each tribe of Israel had a designated stone, and the high priest had these 12 stones on on a breastplate that he wore in the very presence of God. And when he stood at the altar, this symbolized the fact that he as high priest was representing all 12 tribes before God. And there was a clear stone, and there was a red stone on that breastplate. Significantly, these stones are the first and the last stones of the 12 tribes found in Exodus chapter 28. The jasper represented Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, and the carnelian, uh, or rather, excuse me, the, um, the ruby stone, uh, the sardius, represented Benjamin, the youngest of Jacob's 12 sons. 
In other words, the two stones represented the first and the last, and therefore may be regarded as including all the other stones in between, that is, the whole of the covenanted people of God. So these two stones, it would seem, and everything there in the throne room of heaven seems to have a meaning, it seems to have a purpose around the throne of God. And notice we're also told here in verse 3 that around God's throne there was a rainbow in appearance like an emerald. And this rainbow is not being described like we think of the rainbow from God's covenant with Noah. He says this rainbow is in appearance like an emerald. So this does remind us of God's covenant. Remember what happened as God was destroying the earth with the flood that he made a covenant with mankind that he would never destroy the earth with that kind of judgment again. There would be other kinds of judgment coming and this is in part what the book of Revelation reveals to us. But God himself is just revealing his completeness, his holiness, and his character. Around this throne, we're also told that there are elders and living creatures. The rainbow, as we understand it here in this description, seems to be around the throne vertically. And the heavenly beings were arranged around the throne horizontally in a court-like format. So this picture that John is seeing as he looks down and he sees the throne of God and he's trying to describe the presence of God and he sees this completed circle of an emerald rainbow going around the throne, almost in a halo kind of an effect around the throne of God. And then he sees the thrones arranged around the throne of God. And obviously those thrones, those 24 thrones are lesser thrones, verse 4. Around the throne, so we've talked about on the throne, now we're talking about around the throne. Around the throne were 24 elders, and on the thrones I saw, excuse me, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So as John's attention is now directed to this, people, of course, get into all sorts of interesting debates around um, who were these 24 elders. There are some who like to say that because uh, there's 24, 12, and 12, there were 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles, that it could be possibly that, and it could be possibly that. Some also look at the fact that In the Old Testament, there were orders of priests and there were actually 24 orders of peace described in certain sections of the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. And so people uh, have looked at this from all different angles and tried to make sense of it. And I think the cleanest and easiest and perhaps the most comprehensive view of the 24 elders is that they are a representative group of the saints from all ages going back to the beginning of time. Remember in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 we have this picture of what we call the hall of faith and remember as we read in Hebrews 11 and if you haven't read that in a while it might be good to do that it goes back and it looks at all of the people who lived in the Old Testament who were saved who were forward looking to the Messiah and that's part of the point that the writer of Hebrews 11 makes. 
And so there are many who believe, partly because of that, that these 24 elders represent the saints throughout the ages up to the rapture of the church. So all the way from the very beginning of time, those who first believed in the Messiah of God after the fall of man all the way to this time. And the number 24 being a, a number of government and as well as a number of perfection. And we're told here that these elders wore a gold crown, but it's interesting that there's two words for crown in the New Testament. There's the Stephanos, and there is the diadem. The Stephanos is what we know as the Greek laurel wreath that we see given to someone's as a reward when they win or in, after having competed in the Olympic Games. And we know that those crowns are temporary. They are certainly crowns that honor the recipient, but they are nonetheless temporary. They were woven out of greenery. We are also told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about the Bema seat of Christ. And we are told that that's a place that believers will go before God and we will receive rewards for our time of service on the earth, our service to the Lord. And we now have a picture of these 24 elders where their laurel wreaths are gold rather than evergreen. So it certainly is the crown of a victor, but it is not a diadem for Jesus is later pictured as wearing a crown upon his head, but he's wearing the crown of a king and there's only one of those. And he's the only one who has it. And this is not that crown. And so in verse 5, and from the throne, so we've looked at on the throne and around the throne. Now we're looking at from the throne and also before the throne. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. So from the throne of God. On the throne is God. From the throne emanates lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Around the throne are the elders. And we're about to see what they're doing as they worship. So from the very presence of God, lightnings, thunderings, voices. There's this awesome picture and I would imagine that if we were there in that moment, in that situation, and we saw that happening, certainly awe would strike us. And we would sense the holiness of God, the power of God. I don't know if you've ever been outside when a thunderstorm has come up, and maybe lightning has struck nearby and a loud clap of thunder. And it just gets your attention. And sometimes you can even feel the electricity in the air. And you realize in that moment that something greater than you is present. And it just strikes you with fear. Well, on a scale that we, we can't even measure or compare is what is happening here from the very throne of God, from his very presence, lightnings, thunderings, voices. And we're also told that before the throne, like in front of him, Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And of course, we've talked about this. This is just a picture, not of seven Holy Spirits, but of the picture of the completeness of the person of the Spirit. So remember last week, we talked a little bit about the Trinity, the triune nature of God. So we have the Father, we have the Spirit, and we're about to see in chapter 5, which is all part of the same scene, the Lamb of God, the Son of God come on the scene. And there we're going to see the triune God dwelling together 
in heaven, three in one. Three distinct beings, but they're all God. So John is allowed to see this. He's ushered into the very presence of this. The fullness of the Spirit. The majesty of God. The worship of the completeness of those saints sitting around the throne of God. And here in chapter 6, verse 6 rather, before the throne, again we're back there, before the throne there was a sea of glass. How big was this? A sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. So now we're, we're being introduced to more characters, more players in this divine scene. So these are things that are happening around the throne of God, in the very presence of God. There's a sea of glass like crystal. I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean and you've seen it absolutely clear and smooth. Like on a lake, you'd probably think, that's okay, I kind of expect to see that on a lake. And I've had quite a few experiences where we've been on vacation in North Carolina getting up early in the morning and going out and looking at the ocean and seeing it as clear as glass. It's a very unusual sight. Because when we think of the ocean, don't we always think of there's always waves, there's always some ripple of something on the ocean? And in those rare moments when you see that, do you know what happens to you? I can tell you what happens to me. You have this sense of calmness, of peace, of serenity. And not to stretch it, but this is a picture. This is a picture for us of what's happening before the very throne of God. And if we have, in a sense, the culmination of all the saints throughout time up to the time of the tribulation, which we haven't gotten into yet, that these people are before the very throne, before the very presence of God. And there's this, this sea of glass like crystal. That before God, there is peace. There is calm. There's no more hurry. There's no more thinking, I've got to do something. There's no more looking at a watch. There won't be any watches in heaven. God himself will be the timepiece. And in that moment, seeing the sea of glass and in the midst of the thrones and around the thrones, four living creatures, setting the tone for worship, now these four living creatures as we study them and we'll get into their descriptions here a little bit more in a minute but these four living creatures are some type of angelic being and although we don't have time this morning to go back and look at all of the passages that talk about the different angelic beings there seem to be uh, there's Michael the archangel but then there's also the cherubim and the seraphim the cherubim are described in a certain way and they were of course used to be put on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But there were also the seraphim introduced to us in Isaiah chapter 6. And the seraphim had six wings. Two with which they flew, two with which they covered their eyes, and two with which they covered their feet. The cherubim uh, had two wings. So as we understand these things and we look at them and study them, it would seem like these four living creatures 
are either cherubim or seraphim. It's not made clear to us, but they certainly seem to be angelic beings. And notice that we're told that they full of eyes in front and in back. So as we look at them, it, it may be a little scary to us, but as we see them, these angelic beings, as they're flying around and they have these wings and they're in the very presence of God and they have these eyes in front and in back, it gives us a description Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. If you could bring up that slide, please, uh, where I have the comparison of the earthly temple and the heavenly sanctuary. The next one, please, right there. So we have... Throughout the scriptures, even all the way in the Old Testament, as God is giving the tent of meeting and then giving the plans for the temple and for building the altar, for building the way the temple would be laid out, we have a picture between the earth and the heaven. And here's a comparison, just looking at these different aspects of the earthly temple and the heavenly sanctuary. In the earthly temple, we have a place called the Holy of Holies, which represents the very presence of God, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. In the heavenly sanctuary, we actually have the very throne of God. You see, the Holy of Holies was meant for us to be a place of holiness, which only the priest could enter once a year, the high priest. We as people did not have access to it, but remember, when Jesus died on the cross... As he breathed his last and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember, in that moment we are told that the veil in the temple was cut in two, it was rent in two, and although we aren't told, it would seem as it were that the very hand of God cut that veil in two, opened it, symbolizing, and this is later explained for us all throughout the New Testament, that we now have free access into the very presence of God because of the completed work of Jesus. So on earth there's a holy of holies, but in heaven there's the throne of God. And as God is taking John into the throne room, I believe this is intended for us as well that we can understand that just as the veil in the temple was torn, so we now have access through this open door into heaven to see these things. We also see that in the earthly temple there was a seven-branched candlestick. And that seven-branched candlestick was, of course, providing the light. And Jesus, of course, spoke of himself saying that he was the light of the world. But here, before the very presence of God, we have seven lamps of fire before the throne. And these seven lamps of fire represent the, the spirit, the fullness of the spirit. Later, we're going to be told when we get to the heavenly city that there is no need for a son for the, for the Lord God himself and the lamb are its light. We are also told in the earthly temple that there is a bronze laver. So a picture sort of a, a very shallow, large saucer made out of bronze. Bronze was a, a metal that was pictured to judge sin. But we're told before the presence of God, there's a sea of glass. So you see, sin has been judged already. We're going to see that when the lamb walks on the scene in just a few verses from now. 
But there's this sea of glass where there was a bronze laver. The bronze laver was where the blood was and where the, it was all representative of the covering of sin and the washing. There was cherubim over the mercy seat in the earthly temple. Here in the heavenly sanctuary, these four living creatures are around the throne, servicing God, leading the worship service, the divine heavenly worship service. On earth, there are priests. In heaven, there are elders. And certainly throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, we are told that we are kings and priests unto our God. In the earthly temple, there is a brazen altar. And here in Revelation chapter 6, not in this passage, we're told that there is an altar before the very throne of God. And also here in this earthly temple, we're told that there is an incense altar. In heaven, in Revelation chapter 8, we're told that the incense altar represents the prayers of the saints before the very presence of God. And so we're told here in verse 7, you can take that down now, thank you. In verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. If you go and you read in the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, you'll see that Ezekiel describes a very, very similar scene in Ezekiel 1.5. This was their appearance that he saw in his vision. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and then he gives this whole example, and then he gets to verse 10 of Ezekiel chapter 1. As for the likeness of their faces, they had the face of a, a man, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. They had a face of an ox on the left side, uh, the face of an eagle. And so this is a very similar picture that he sees. And so... We can look at this in many different ways. There's different views of this. Uh, the lion indicating majesty and omnipotence. The ox, uh, typical of faithful labor and patience. A man indicating intelligence. And the eagle, the greatest bird, representing supreme sovereignty. Of course, the four Gospels have been seen in representing four aspects of Jesus himself. In Matthew, he is seen as the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Mark as the faithful servant or as an ox. In Luke, the incarnate humanity of Jesus. And in John, the eagle as the divine son of God. John, of course, is about the very deity, the godlike nature of Jesus himself. And so many believing that these four faces representing the different aspects of God's divine nature and how God all throughout history portrayed himself in these ways. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we also have a similar picture where Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And it stood above it, excuse me, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he, he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now look in verse 8. The four living creatures having six wings were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
So these are angelic beings. Are they cherubim? Are they seraphim? We don't know. But notice that they cry out as they, we are told that they do not rest day or night. From our point of view and as humans thinking of time, we would say 24 by 7, this is happening around the throne of God. But in heaven, there is no sense of time. For eternity is eternity. And so these living creatures are forever declaring the worship of God. Verse 9, watch what happens. This is a picture of worship. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So remember, we're seeing this whole scene now and we see these four living creatures declaring worship and worth and honor to the Lord. Notice what happens in verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne. I think if we can just stop for a moment and think about the landscape of worship in the church today, so much of it is not this, right? So much of it is man-centered. So much of it is flamboyance around us expressing our gifts and doing things to honor God, but we do it in such a way that it draws attention to us. I think you would agree with me as we read this, as we study it, that you can sense the fact that there is nothing in heaven about man and it's all about God. Paul gives us sort of a forward-looking view of this where he says in Philippians 2, and you will remember this verse, he says, therefore God has also highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This worship we're seeing here from these living creatures and the elders is preparing the way for Jesus to walk into the room. I love what Spurgeon had to say here about this heavenly scene of worship where he said, our text says that they all cast their crowns before the throne. Listen, there are no divided opinions in heaven. There are no sects, no parties, no schisms. They are all in perfect harmony and sweet accord. What one does, everybody does. They cast their crowns without exception before the throne. Let us begin to practice that unanimity here. As fellow Christians, let us get rid of everything that would divide us from each other or separate us from our Lord. I do not read that there was a single elder who envied his brother's crown and said, Ah, I wish I were such a one as he and had his crown. I do not read that one of them began to find fault with his brother's crown and said, Ah, his jewels may be bright, but mine have a particular tint to them. And my jewels are of greater excellence than his. I do not read anything of dissension. They were all unanimous in casting their crowns at Jesus' feet. And they were all unanimous in glorifying God. Won't that be amazing? What's the name of your church? Church of God of Jesus Christ. That's it. No denominationalism. 
Another person said, by casting their crowns before the throne, they testify that if it had not been for God's grace, for God's salvation, for God's goodness, they could not have had victory over sin and death. Here, this is a picture that the creature is subject to his creator. Verse 11, what are they saying? You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they exist and they were created. The wonderful phrase, and for thy pleasure, they are and were created, reminds us that we exist, each one of us, to give glory and pleasure to God. Until we do that, we don't fulfill our created purpose. If you've ever wondered, what is the meaning of life? If you've ever wondered, what is my purpose here on the earth? At the very least, it's to give honor and glory and worship and pleasure to God. Romans chapter 11 verse 36 says this, it says, Of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I love this picture that one commentator painted of this whole scene where he said, we should plan ahead for this great day. If you and I should walk into some great cathedral where they were singing and say, can I be allowed to sing in the choir? They would ask whether we had ever learned the tune. They would not let us join unless we had. Nor can we expect that untrained voices should be admitted into the choirs above. Now, dear brothers and sisters, have you learned to cast your crowns at the Savior's feet already? John Piper wrote this in one of his books. He said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. I just don't think we live there, do we? I know I don't. We don't live in the place where we're just satisfied with who God is. Most of us have not come to the place where we can say, Lord, you're enough. You know, in the song that we sing, all of you is more than enough for all of me. You see, when we come to a time of worship, I would hope that doesn't matter where it is, whether it's here or some other church or in your personal time, it doesn't matter. That worship is a sacred time. We are in God's presence. One day we will forever be in this scene, but until then, we need to understand that the throne room of heaven should define and shape our understanding of what worship is. To, to give, to ascribe glory and honor unto the Lord. You know, this would take care of so many of our issues, wouldn't it? When we get all distressed and distraught and we have problems and we get caught up and we're overwhelmed and with, with work and with schedules and with the tragedies that happen in our lives and think, you know, cars breaking down. I mean, all the things of life that happen to us, right? That we get so upset about. 
You know, the world would teach you things like transcendental meditation to deal with your stress. Or yoga. Or something like that where you sit and you meditate. And you get your mind on to the trees or the grass or to the animals or something like that. Can you see how empty that is in light of what we're looking at here? Listen, if you want to de-stress yourself, go into the throne room of God. Go before the sea of glass. Go before the throne of God. Go before the presence of one who's described as, as, as clear crystal and as blood red rubies. Where the four living creatures, the cherubim, seraphim, are around the throne worshiping God. And as they worship, every time they sing a new, a new verse, they take their crowns, the 24 elders, who we believe represents all of believing humanity. What do they do? They take whatever they have and they give it back to God. You see, it puts in perspective works, doesn't it? Works as important, works as fruit are the evidence of the presence and the life of God within us. But I'm not at competition with you, nor are you at competition with me. And if we think that way, far be it from us to think that way. Because before the presence of God, our laurel wreaths, our Stefano's crowns, are going on the ground before God. And if, now thinking forward, if one day this is our destiny, if one day this will be us in that heavenly scene as John sees it, then it should help us properly set our priorities now so that we understand in the long run, in the long view, is it going to matter? The things that we're stressing about now, is that going to matter? So we're, we're upset because we're not getting what we want when we want it. There, we won't care about what we wanted when we were on earth. We will only care about the fact that we are in his presence. And that we exist for one thing and one thing alone. And that's for the glory and the pleasure of God. We were created to give him honor and glory and power. We were created for his purposes. God is most glorified with us when we are most satisfied with him. Lord, may these things speak to us. May these things help us understand what it means to be in your presence. May these things change our understanding and our view of worship. Lord, may these Things help us to understand that our approach to worship sometimes is really sacrilegious. Because we've not come sometimes to honor you, we've just come to fulfill an obligation. And even then, Lord, often we do it half-heartedly. So, Lord... Transform our understanding of who you are. Transform our understanding of what it means to be in your presence. And may we, Lord, as we have those moments alone with you, one-on-one, -on -one, may we experience this scene in our own hearts and minds and prepare ourselves for that great day when we will be there in your presence forever and ever where the only thing that will matter is you. 
until us, till then, Lord, help us to lay aside the sin and the cares and the worries of the world, the things which so easily entangle us, and to cast them off, that we might run our race with endurance, that we might run our race giving glory and honor to you, that we might run our race with our eyes lifted up and our hands pointed toward heaven. And Lord, I pray that we would be so filled with your Holy Spirit that we would be used by you to draw others into this incredible relationship with you, to be saved, to be born again. Lord, do these things and more. Do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Blow our minds, Lord, we pray. And this morning, if you have never trusted in Christ, we want to just ask you in this moment, would you respond to him? That call of God upon your heart and upon your life and just simply reach out to him in faith and just say, Lord, I give my heart to you right now and I want this kind of life. I I want to be in your presence. I want to worship you because the alternative is eternity apart from you. And we don't want that. We want to be in this heavenly scene before your throne. So Lord, do that this morning for any who are leaning in that direction, who are thinking about you, who are by faith reaching out and saying, God, save me, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, right now enter their lives and redeem them. In Jesus' name we pray.